Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, team. Good morning. Thank you. I've got to stop taking these vacations. <laughs> I work harder <laughs> than, than normal working time. But that's all right. It's a great joy to serve the Lord. Before I bring the message, a few years ago, I did a series of messages called Ordinary People, Extraordinary Prayers. And I cannot remember how many of you came to me after many times and would say, please put that in a book. Please put that in a book. Well, Baker Books finally realized that that needs to be in a book. So they published it, and it just came out this week. Life-changing prayers. And it starts in every area of every aspect of life. Well, Ali Isa praying for a wife for Isaac, and God answered his prayer, and even gave him, fulfilled the signs that he asked for. And yet, nothing wrong with asking for signs. And then Hannah prayed for a baby. And God did not only give her one, he blessed her with many. And then young Daniel, he prayed. And then it goes on and on and on. These are prayers of ordinary people. This is where everybody says, well, you know, these big preachers, these, no, these are very ordinary people who have prayed and God answered their prayers in an extraordinary way. The book will be available. And the reason I unashamedly promote a book it doesn't belong to me. I receive nothing from it. It belongs to leading the way, and all, minist- all the money goes to ministry. So it has nothing to do with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, will you let me have your thoughts so that I only speak that which you would have me speak. Father, we know your word is infallible, and your word is profitable for rebuke and for encouragement. And so I ask that you let that word do it as Martin Luther would pray. Let your word do it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I read a story about a well-known American by the name of Wendell Wilkie. You can Google him now, thank God for Google, and you will get to know more than you really want to know. He was a friend of President Roosevelt, that is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he came to him one day in the Oval Office, and he said, Mr. President, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. He said, why do you have this, or keep this, this frail, sickly, Man, Harry Hopkins, uh, constantly at your elbow, in the Oval Office, everywhere you go. Without a moment's hesitation, President Roosevelt answered. He said, Mr. Wilkie, through the door into this Oval Office, there are incessant stream of people coming in and out of my office. Almost all of them want something from me. Harry Hopkins, on the other hand, desires nothing but serve me. He desires nothing but help me. And that is why I keep him close to me. And I remember 
that story as I thought of the life of David. Because David was a man at the elbow of the king of kings. And always close to the Lord. A man whose heart was after God. David was young and he was despised. I'm going to show you throughout the series of message. He was despised but by his older more successful brothers. David was obscure uh, in the household of Jesse. And I'm saying this for the outset, and I, don't, I want you to keep remembering this. If somebody here or around the world watching right now who will say, I don't matter, uh, I can't do anything, I, I, I am just, I, I am no one. No, I want you to listen very carefully because God is looking at your heart right now. David was a nondescript, uh, and he was no match uh, for his bigger successful brothers. David uh, could not have been more unlikely choice to be the king of Israel. But because he stayed close to the king of kings, because uh, he has a, had a heart that was willing not only to serve, but to obey the king of kings because he had one longing and one desire to be close to the king of kings and to be uh, the servant of the king of kings. The king of kings kept him at his elbow all the time and made him the king of Israel. Most unlikely person. So don't tell me that you think you're unlikely because God specializes in using the unlikely people. Amen? But that's not all. Because of his ready and willing heart, David did not only become a great king for Israel, but he became one of the most important figures in all of history. You say, why? You see, because God always is looking for a ready and willing heart. That's what he's looking for. Because God is always looking for more uh, more, uh, availability than ability. Because God is always looking for a generous and giving hearts, not uh, uh, hoarders and takers. Because God is always looking for servants, not for those who are self-serving. Now, you don't have to look hard to find so many clever people in the church of Jesus Christ. You don't have to look very hard to find so many gifted people in the church of Jesus Christ. But God is not looking for talent. He's looking for testimony. God is is not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. God is not looking for those who are wishing. He's looking for those who are willing. That's what God does. The first thing God looks at is the heart. Listen, this is a contrast of all contrasts. When you think about our 21st century shallowness, superficiality, and we look at the fame, and we look at the outward appearance, and we look at the wealth, and we look at this, and we look at that. God, in contrast, says, I look at the heart. I don't look at this outward appearance. Beloved, listen, I am not minimizing ability, because all abilities are God-given. 
He gives us all of our abilities anyway. Whether it would be abilities you're born with or gifts of the Holy Spirit he gives you later. They're all from God. But all of the abilities uh, are God-given anyway. Therefore, I am not minimizing them. But hear me right. Here is a Yusuf formula. If you're taking notes, write them down. A Yusuf formula. You can blame me for it if you don't like it. All right? Ability without availability is inability. How do you like that? I had to think long and hard. <laughs> now, of course, one of the, the, the dangerous things about preaching from the life of David is that such a well-known character. Even non-believers know about David. And so he is so well-known. In fact, most people really know those only two events in David's life, the great victories over Goliath and his great failure in adultery with Bathsheba. That's the only two things they know about David. But the truth is, there is a whole lot more that some of you even did not know is in the Bible that I'll be going through in the next several messages as we go through this amazing life of this amazing human being. Because God said of him, I have examined David's heart and I found it after my own. I know this is the longing of my heart. <laughs> See, there's a lot more to learn in the next 14 messages from this life of David than those two great events in his life. Let me give you just a perspective, just a small perspective from the Scripture about David so you understand framing it from a, a, from a scriptural and biblical point of view. Abraham, the father of faith, Abraham, the great man, uh, occupies 14 chapters in the Bible. Israel, or Jacob, occupies seven chapters in the Bible. Joseph, whom God used uh, to save Israel from uh, starvation, <laughs> occupies 14 chapters in the Bible. David occupies 66 chapters. You get the point? And he has been mentioned in the New Testament 59 times at least. But the one thing that you'll see again and again and again about David's life, that his life was not a Teflon where everything and all the problems of life just slid by. It was a Teflon. You know, they said things about some certain people and said, he's like a Teflon. Everything just falls. No, he did not live, quote-unquote, charmed life. He did not. The truth is, any heart that is after God's own heart, listen to me, any heart that's after God's own heart does not necessarily experience charmed life. In many ways, I want to show you that David lived a difficult life. David lived a tragic life. David lived a lonely life. David lived a, a broken dream, life of broken dreams. He, he lived a life of brokenness before God. I know in the 21st century, there are some snake oil salesmen in the church. Hello. 
Now, those of you younger generation don't know this. In the old days, in small towns, you get somebody comes in the town and sell snake oil. And he said, this is cures everything. It's a cure-all. And people buy it, and by the time they discovered it was useless, the guy already checked out of town. They hear, you hear them all the time. They're selling you formulas for health and wealth. They sell you formulas for charmed life. They sell you formulas for getting it all, getting all you want in this life. It's a formula for life of ease. They give you formulas uh, of, of how to create a constant sunshine and blue sky in your life. Now, thank God for those moments of sunshine in our lives. I do not minimize those. I thank God for them. But as C.S. Lewis said, that God allows those in our lives, these respites and those moments of, of joy in our lives, but don't ever confuse them with heaven. Because heaven is where our charmed life is going to be. In such a time and in such situation, when you tell you that Everything can be hunky-dory if you just have a positive thought. What that does, it, it obscure reality. It pushes aside truth. Those who preach perpetual sunshine are not preaching the full truth of the Word of God. To be sure, the Bible shows us how to snatch life out of the jaws of death. The Bible shows us how to snatch victory out of the jaw of defeat. The Bible uh, shows us how to rise above the floods in life. To be sure, that's there. <laughs> but it does not mean that we will not face real and present dangers in this life. You know, when our children were little, just like every, all parents, uh, we used to read them the nursery rhymes. The nursery rhymes used to, you know, you already know I'm kind of weird anyway. You, you know, I kind of think things that most people kind of don't think about. Uh, I have those weird thoughts. Uh, you, you, most of you know this. So, so we, we, I would read this thing when my, it's my turn. <laughs> uh, about Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Remember that? And all of the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty together again. And I remember saying this, thinking in my head, I didn't tell the kids that. But Humpty Dumpty does not need the king's men and the king's horses. Humpty Dumpty needs the king. <laughs> that's what she needed. She needed the king. But again, that's, that's a weird way of thinking. In fact, if you think about David, you're going to find that... David fell again and again and again, and the king of kings put his life together again and again and again, and he does the same with you and with me. Amen. Amen. Thank God for his grace. Now, beloved, after all these years of walking with the Lord, I can tell you, that there are only two ways by which we can react to brokenness in our life. Only two ways. After all these years, you either become better 
because of it, or you become bitter in it. Uh, either you face it with humility, repentance, and restoration, or allow bitterness and resentment uh, to consume you and render you ineffective. I know you've heard me say this before, and you're going to keep hearing it until the Lord either takes me home or takes me out. <laughs> I'm going to keep repeating it because I love the honesty of the Scripture. Don't ever, ever minimize that. The honesty of the Scripture is very important to me. I know it's very important to many of you, most of you. The honesty of the Scripture. I am so thankful to God that He did not take these characters in the Bible, wash them, sanitize them, uh, starch them, and then wrap them in a yellow cellophane, because a cellophane is, 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 is really very, very attractive. And then he placed him on a pedestal, and he said, now guys, you need to imitate them. How can I identify with them? If they all done, all that was done in the back, in the back room, and I have not seen it. And that is why I am so grateful for the truthfulness of the Scripture. Instead, the Bible shows us the sinfulness of sin. It shows us the, the blinding power of sin and the consequences of sin, for which I'm very grateful. And after I see all of that, I want to stand on the mountaintop and shout, Thanks be to God that I'm living in the New Testament where Jesus has washed all my sins away on the cross of Calvary. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Give God praise. In all truthfulness, the 66 chapters of the life of David would make a far better soap opera than Hollywood can ever produce. Let me assure you, you'll see some of it. In fact, I'm going to give you as much of it as I can throughout the series. Why do I say this? Well, because the difference between this true life drama in the life of David and all of the drama that Hollywood produces, the difference is very clear. The Bible in this drama shows us the wages of sin, the result of sin, the consequences of sin. Hollywood washes and sanitizes and sugarcoats the pain and the poison of sin. So as I begin this new series of messages for the rest of this fall and, and into the end of the year, I'm entitling it A Heart for God or A Heart After God. But before I really even begin to come to 1 Samuel 16, which I hope you have already opened in front of you, I'm going to come to it in a minute. <clears throat> I want to give you a historical background. Now, don't go to sleep and start yawning and say, oh, oh, this is a boring history lesson. It's not. If you blink, you're going to miss it. Well, some of you blinked. But <laughs> I want, I want, I'm, it would be so fast. Trust me. After Joseph and his family went to Egypt, they grew in number. They were 400 years down there. God delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. 
through the leadership of Moses. There in the wilderness, they sat for 40 years. Joshua comes in, and he leads them into the promised land. When Joshua died, we, uh, the following generation after Joshua, they basically forgot all about what God did for them. They forgot about the God of their fathers. And the Bible said that each of them began to do what is right in their own eyes. This, my beloved friends, is the beginning of what we see today as no absolutes, no absolute truth. This is the beginning movement. The truth is relative. Your truth, my truth, everybody's truth, that's the beginning of it. It began right there. Beginning at that period, which we call it the period of the judges, when the Israelites get into trouble and they get indulgent into their pagan's lifestyle, they will cry out to God when they suffer, and God would send them a deliverer. We call them judges, but they really are deliverers. Again and again and again. You read it at least 11, 12 times in the book of Judges. You see it. They rationalize their sin. They indulge in their sin. And they would wink at their rebellion against God. They abandon all responsibility to God who blessed them so. They basically got into this falsehood that if it feels good, do it. No consequences. But we, you and I, know differently. So in the midst of this dreadful period, this difficult period, this, this, this hard time we call the period of the judges, we read a beautiful story. It's an amazing story of God's grace. <laughs> if you have never been grateful for God's grace, I hope that one thing you learn today is you begin to value and, va- and appreciate and not take for granted the grace of God. It's a beautiful story. Ruth, Ruth, loyal, dedicated, loving, but Gentile woman. Did you know the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ was not Jewish? She was Gentile. Ruth. She marries a Jewish man by the name of Boaz. And then they have a son. They named him Obed. Obed had a son. They named him Jesse. Jesse had eight boys. David was the youngest. I'm getting ready to shout because I know what I'm going to (laughs) say. Twenty-eight generations from David. Go home and count them. 28 generations from David in the same city of Bethlehem where David was born. The descendant of David was born of a virgin whom, who is God's Messiah and no other than our beloved Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. What a, what a great God we have. Listen to me. Listen to me. I know it is not fashionable. So many folks are preaching on television. They're denying the sovereignty of God. My friend R.T. Kendall wrote a book on the sovereignty of God. And so many of his famous friends on television would not endorse it because they did not believe in the sovereignty of God. But I'm going to tell you, my beloved, beloved, beloved friends, don't underestimate or take lightly the sovereignty of God. 
Don't ever underestimate or take lightly how much God can accomplish when you cooperate with Him. Don't ever underestimate or take lightly the untold blessings that can only come from obedience. Now, if you read this book, Life-Changing Prayers, that I told you about, you will read about a desperate woman. She was persecuted by the other wife of Cana, suffered pain, anguish, mocked. And she came to the Lord crying out for a baby. And she made God a promise. She said, if you give me a baby, I will dedicate him to you. He will serve you. And sure enough, she kept her word. Hannah kept her word. She kept her word. And she gave him to the service of the Lord. But here's the good news. You read further, it says, God blessed her with a whole lot of other kids. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That's our God. That's our God. He blessed her in abundance. That boy grew to be the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. His name was Samuel. Samuel. During Samuel's time, the spiritual condition of Israel was at a low ebb, just like our day. Uh, During that time, rebellion against God and his moral absolutes took a defiant tone. They rejected God's plan for them. They rejected God's headship and leadership. They rejected God's kingship over them, and they wanted an earthly king. So God gave them one was more of a judgment over the rejection of him than anything else. Saul, the first king, God gave him to to Israel. Now, Saul was gifted on paper. Uh, Saul had all of the human credentials. Uh, Saul had all of the human qualifications to be a king. Saul had all the good looks. Saul had all of the deceptive appearances. Are you with me? Ah, but his heart was not right. His heart was rotten. He, his heart was self-seeking and self-serving. His heart was self-centered. It was not after God's own heart. But even then, the God of all grace, <laughs> the God of grace overruled. He overruled and had mercy on Israel, and he gave them David. Here's a problem before I get to the text. I haven't started the sermon yet. Just in case some of you start panicking, I want you to panic even more. <laughs> um, I haven't got to the text yet, but, but, but I want to tell you this is very important. Here's the problem with Saul, and you see it in the Scripture, in the text. He was rejected by God, but he did not know it. Saul kept on functioning as king even after the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. Beloved, let me ask you this. How many churches do you know continue to function even after the leadership has departed from the truth? How many ministries continue to function even after this leadership has ceased to please God? How many churches do you know that have started right 
but kept on going even though when it was hitting wrong. Here's something of equal importance. And that's in the text now. I want you to get the text out. If you have your own Bible, I hope you have a pen. And if you have your iPad, if you're technical and you want to get iPad, iPhone, all that stuff, you can mark. I don't know. I don't know how to do this, but I, I know some people do. Thank God for you. Uh, all, all the technologists we have here. You know, if you can put a, 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 a mark between the first half of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel and the second half, you're going to find they are absolutely in contrast with each other. The first half and the second half. The first half and the second half. In the first half of chapter 16, David is anointed king by the prophet Samuel. In the second half, he enters into the service of Saul. In the first half, you see the Spirit of the Lord come upon David. In the second half, you see the Spirit of the Lord has come out from Saul and an evil spirit replacement. And some of you probably will think, what was this evil spirit from the Lord? Well, because when the Lord basically take his spirit out, what comes in is an evil spirit. Uh, the first half of the chapter, David gets anointed by the Holy Spirit. In the second half, you see Saul being tormented by an evil spirit. In the first half, you see Samuel mourns and he grieves over Saul. In the second half of the chapter, Saul is oblivious to his abysmal condition, spiritual condition that he's in. And God tells Samuel, stop grieving over Saul. Some of you here, now I'm talking about those especially who are watching around the world, you support and you go to a churches from which the Spirit of God has departed. You need to move on. Get out. Stop grieving over soul. Beloved, let me ask you this. Is it possible for you to mourn and grieve for too long over someone or something? Is it possible? Yes. Is it possible? Yes. The Bible says that there is a time to mourn and there is a time to rejoice. Mourning for too long over past sins that God has forgiven you long ago. Mourning for too long over past bitterness that you have given to the Lord again and again, but you keep on nursing. Uh, mourning too long over past hurt. Mourning too long over past injustices. Mourning too long over past betrayals. Mourning too long over past losses. Listen to me. You may have every right to mourn for a period of time, but not forever. Okay? It is time to move on. Can you say that with me? It is time to move on. Now, I want you to say it with enthusiasm. It is because mourning for too long creates a fog over your future. Uh, mourning for too long over past can rob you of great future joy and service. And that is why God said to the prophet Samuel, you have mourned long enough over soul. Get up, get your flax of oil, and go to Jesse's house.
At this point of history, this, this part, when God said to Samuel, take a flax of oil and go to Jesse's house. Now, this is my testimony. I'm confessing to you. For years, probably decades, troubled me. Really has. I don't know about you, but every time I read, every time I think about it, every time I preach from it, it, it bothered me. And I asked the Lord this. <laughs> and believe it or not, I'm so thankful the Lord answered me. He doesn't that all the, do that all the time. I wish he does, but not always. I said, Lord, why didn't you say to Samuel, Samuel, take your flax of oil, go to Jesse's house, and anoint his younger son David to be king? I really did. It troubled me. It might not trouble some of you, but it did trouble me for years and years. Here is what the Lord taught me, and I share it with you. I pray God will use it in your life. God does not always give us all the information ahead of time even to his prophet. He doesn't give us that information ahead of time. I tell you why he doesn't do that. That's how I I understood this from the Word of God. If he did, (laughs) we would not learn to lean on him. Are you with me? If he did, we would not grow in our faith and in our trust, in our confidence in him. If he did, we would not mature in Christ and would become babies and live as spiritual babies for all of our Christian life. Here God is about to teach Samuel a lesson. In fact, he teaches him a lesson that many of us refuse to learn because he wants to teach you, every one of you, he wants to teach us that same lesson. First of all, notice Samuel's reaction. Verse 2, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Look at his reaction. He didn't say, yes, Lord, whatever you say, Lord, I will do whatever you ask me to do. I'm ready to do it. He did not. (laughs) Hello. Can you identify with that? You know what he said? Lord. If Saul finds out about this, he'll kill me. You notice, he was very concerned about the safety of his wife's husband. You notice that? Some of you will get that tomorrow morning, a coffee. He was concerned about his wife, safety of his wife's husband. Beloved, don't be quick to judge Samuel. I sometimes say things, but I go back and say, no, no, I can't. I can't. Judge him because this is a legitimate fear. Now, there is a type of fear that's illegitimate, of which I'll be talking about next message, next Sunday. Uh, There is an illegitimate fear, but this is very legitimate. (laughs) Very legitimate. And so, my very, very special dear friends, beloved in Christ, listen to me. Sometimes, God asks us to do things that are scary. Sometimes God asks us to do things that requires risk-taking. 
Sometimes God asks us to do things that demands sacrifice. Sometimes God asks us to do things that require what I call, not the Bible, I call it spiritual bungee jumping. Have you ever seen one of those things? You're hanging by your ankles. You jump over that bridge. They started in New Zealand and this took over the world. There is no way on God's earth. I trust God with all my life. Man, I'm going to do that. <laughs> but I can tell you I've done that a couple of times at least, spiritually speaking. <laughs> I budgie jumped spiritually a couple of times. Why? Why does God ask us to do that? He's testing to see our willingness to trust Him. We can sing and tell, we trust you, Lord, and do all that stuff. Uh-uh. Said, can you really? Do you really? He is testing us to see how willing we are to take Him at His word. So God places an opportunity in front of us, and He poses a question. And then He waits. And he waits, and he waits to see what our response is going to be. Look at verses 6 all the way to 13. Samuel takes the plunge and goes to Bethlehem to Jesse's house. Now, from this point on, I'm going to give you not a use of translation, but a use of interpretation. Because if you're going to look for it in the Bible, you're not going to find it. It's a use of interpretation. Don't like it, blame me, okay? Here's, I want you to imagine this scenario, okay? Samuel comes in and he said, Jesse, my friend, give me your best and your brightest and the most handsome of all your boys. Give me the most impressive of all eight boys. Well, Jesse said, uh, here's Eliab. He's the oldest. I confess to you, I've always wanted to be the oldest. I wasn't. I was the runt. But I admire people who, because I, I know people who come, in the, the oldest in the, in the, in the bunch, <laughs> they have a strong heart. They're overachievers, and they are very successful. At least that's what they tell me. And I'm inclined to believe them. Samuel looks at Eliab, probably looks up to him. Samuel, probably short guy, looks up and says, Wow, what an impressive man. Sorry, Jesse, not this one. What do you mean? What do you mean, not this one? This guy played for the Bethlehem Steelers, <laughs> he was the MVP of the year for three years in the running. Sorry, Jesse. Prophet of God. This boy was the top of his class in Bethlehem University. Sorry, Jesse. But prophet of God. Okay. He's Abinadab. Abinadab, you got to know, he has a PhD. 
and his research papers are published in Jerusalem Harvard Review. <laughs> he actually has made the name Jesse very famous throughout the land. And Samuel thought to himself probably for a moment and said, oh, okay, God must really want a scholarly type. Samuel gets to the altar and start anointing him, and God said, no, sit down, Samuel, sit down. <laughs> Not this one. So Jesse brings Shammah, number three. Now, this guy, you got to understand, this guy runs three corporations. I mean, his record at Harvard Business Review, man, where, where he earned his Ph.D., his records have never been matched. It's never been matched. Shama actually put together some of the biggest merger and acquisition deals known on Wall Street. Oh, he understands leverage buyout like no other one in the business world. Ah, Samuel probably thought, ah, God is looking for a shrewd negotiator. One someone who knows the art of the deal. I mean, he's got to deal with all these tricky business people in, in Jerusalem and Israel, so you got to, you got, this guy is, is a negotiator. He must be the one. He's got to deal with these tricky merchants. The Lord said, no, sit down, Samuel, sit down, sit down. Not this one either. By that time, I'm convinced in my own heart, it's not in the Bible, Samuel just gave up guessing and second-guessing God. <laughs> he just said, I give up. I mean, all these qualified people. He stopped assuming and presuming <clears throat> on God. Now, beloved, listen to me. Did I, have I lost you yet? Have I lost you? Just listen. A few more minutes. I know and you know. And you may have been there yet. I have not been there yet, but I have. I have. Many times we run this way and run this way. And every time we convince ourselves, this was God must want God. God wants this. Surely this must be the one. Surely this must be the way. Surely this must be the deal. Surely it must be what God wants me to do. Only to discover that we're really actually answering our own prayers. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Okay. Don't raise your hand, but I am. All the seven boys paraded in front of Samuel, and the Lord said, no, 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 no. Why is that? I think you and I and all of us and everybody around at the sound of my voice, listen to me. We need to frame verse 7. You can hang it on the wall, but more importantly, you can have it in your heart. Verse 7, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It needs to be printed on the cortex of our minds and hearts. Why? Because we judge by appearance, but God sees the heart. We get taken by the ability, but God is looking for availability. 
We can be duped by one's resume. (laughs) But God sees the heart. Finally, out of desperation, Samuel asks, are these all of your boys? That's it? Well, yes. Basically. (laughs) These are the ones that really matter. These are the ones that are significant. These are the ones who are qualified for the job. And Jesse probably stammered and stuttered and stumbled and said, uh, well, (laughs) well, not quite. There's the runt. But he's not here. The runt of the family. You know, in old England, they used to say the first one is, runs the family estate, and the second one goes become a doctor or something, and then the, the youngest always was a preacher. Uh, very interesting. <laughs> that, that, that is actually true, culturally. Read about it. <laughs> well, the runt, he's doing the menial task that the others wouldn't do. He's taking care of the sheep out in the desert, in the wilderness. Beloved, listen to me. I'm about to finish. In a culture that only the firstborn mattered, in a culture where only success mattered, in a culture where the runt is the runt no matter what, God says, none of these boys are really my choice. And so Samuel sits down until they send for David and bring him home. I want you to imagine, just put yourself in in the place. I always like to imagine things. And Samuel's sitting down, and finally, after a while, he's sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. This young teenager walks in. I want every teenager who's listening to me to listen very carefully. God is looking at your heart. Don't worry about what people say. Be concerned about what God says. You might be down on yourself, and you think, I'm not not important. I don't matter. Listen to me. God says you do. And that's who count. So he comes in, dirty face, dirty clothes, most likely smell. Because he was with his sheep all the time. And Samuel must have looked at him and thought, is this really the one? And God answered his question. Samuel, this is the one. You got yourself a winner here. I'm going to tell you this as I conclude. I pray that everyone... As you prepare your heart, walk down this aisle, participate in the Lord's table. I want you to not only examine yourself, but I want you to begin to say, God, let me see myself the way you see me. And I'll tell you this, as a man who had made so many mistakes in my life, and this is just not something nice to say, but something kind of acceptable. I'm telling you, God in heaven knows. A man who made so many mistakes in his life, 
It is my daily prayer. It's my daily prayer. It's constantly in my heart. Is Lord, I plead with you, blind me to my own opinion. Give me only the mind of the Holy Spirit. Then empower me to obey him. Now, many of, you come, many of you come to me and say, oh, how do we pray for you? That's how you can pray for me. In fact, the vestry members know. For 31 years, I've been saying this, and I'll keep on saying it. I said, guys, we're here because each of us have an opinion, and all of our opinions are wonderful. They're brilliant. But when it comes to the work of God, we're only looking for one opinion, and that's the mind of the Holy Spirit. And that's our prayer every vestry meeting that the Holy Spirit will give us his mind and then empowers us to obey him. Will you pray with me? Now, I don't know everyone here. I don't know, in fact, any of your thoughts. But God does. I don't know where you are. I don't know how you thought of things and you don't know how you, you, you figured things out. But if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today and let you know that God is looking at your heart, don't be impressed by appearances. I want you to say, Holy Spirit of God, convict me, empower me, strengthen me, guide me. I'm all yours. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word because it constantly encourages us. And we see how your hand and your grace again and again and again put David together. And you put us together again and again and again. What a a wonderful grace of God. We plead with you that none of us, no one at the sound of my voice will ever take that grace for granted. Oh, presume on that grace, but we forever indebted. And Father, as we come to remember this amazing grace, the God of heaven slaughtered on a cross because he loved us and redeemed us. May we never, ever let that thought go out of our heads. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing with us.